Welcome to When There Are No Words, conversations between artists about grief and hope in their work. This series is sponsored by 10 of those, resources that point to Jesus change lives. To support the podcast, get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and other gifts, join us on Acast Plus for as little as £5 a month. Hello and welcome to episode five of When There Are No Words. Um, In this episode, I'm chatting with uh, painter and writer, Ali Gordon. A fascinating conversation, um, a lot about imagination, uh, eternity, uh, what comes next, hope. Um, And again, uh, it's just, it's so wonderful, the, uh, the hope that we have Um, because of Jesus that means we can talk so honestly about loss and grief Um, but even though the journey through grief um, kind of goes round and round and in waves it doesn't stay with despair Um, it's always infused with hope however small those rays of light might be at times and we, we talk about all of that we talk about some of the pitfalls of dealing with that as well as artists um, so a fascinating conversation. Do stay tuned all the way to the end um, because we've got some fun giveaways. And um, uh, and also you'll be able to get 30% off uh, Why Art Matters. So listen to that advert for the middle of the episode. Right, enough of me. Um, over to me. Today I have with me painter and writer Ali Gordon. Um, Ali, hello. Hello. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your particular approach to, to painting? Um, I'm not that au fait with the um, fine arts, so I'm going to get terminology wrong and stuff. So you, you put it in your words. What do you do? I'm, yeah, sure. I'm probably best known for making very hyper-realistic paintings, paintings that look like everyday objects like masking tape, paper aeroplanes, postcards, letters, and they would appear to be painted onto wooden panels. But you look really, really carefully and you realise that everything has, has been painted. And more recently, I've actually been painting the landscape. So I've been making paintings that are very loose and gestural and evocative, and they look like they've been painted onto wooden panels. So they kind of look like the things that artists have hanging around in their in their studios, pinned on walls and taped on boards and things like that. So uh, why? <laughs> why, <laughs> why? Why paint what's behind the painting? Yes. Yeah, sometimes I ask myself the same question. Well, they refer back to this tradition of painting that emerged in the 17th century, early 18th century. It was a type of illusion painting. Um, It was called quadlibet, which means what you will. And um, artists at that time, they were making paintings that looked like things that had been pinned or taped onto a, a wooden surface, like a sort of letter rack or... In modern day terms, the sort of thing that you might stick in a scrapbook or have stuck to your fridge with a magnet or pinned virtually onto your desktop 
with um, virtual post-it notes and things like that. And um, the quadrilobet paintings were, were, were sort of like philosophical discussions. There are ways of bringing together lots of different images that wouldn't necessarily relate to one another, but you throw them all in at the same time, and suddenly this interesting conversation is happening between these different sort of um, uh, types of, of image. Um, in some ways, it's a little bit like a, a kind of jam session, a kind of musician's jam session okay. where everybody sort of brings in a line or a melody or an idea and you get the song at the end of it. A quadly bet is, is like a sort of visual art equivalent of a jam session, but usually with one artist in the middle kind of jamming with herself, himself. Um, so that's the background to it. And I, I find yeah. that a really interesting way of, of making paintings because it, it allows mm -hmm. me to approach all kinds of interesting ideas, you know, uh, ideas that are prevalent in popular culture, ideas that are important in art history, ideas connecting with a theological or faith-based position, philosophical ideas. You know, you can literally talk about anything within this genre. So I'm surprised there aren't more quadly bit artists out there <laughs> doing this. But for the meantime, I'll, I'll hang on to it as sort of my yeah. thing. <laughs> nice. And so how much of that is um, staged? How much of it is going, this, this is natural and this is these, I, I'm kind of responding to what is there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm intrigued. Yeah, well, at the moment, the, the paintings of landscape, they, so they start off in the studio. And I guess this is the point at which we mm. say this is all very visual for a podcast. So, you know, you can... <laughs> You can find um, my paintings online if you Google my name, and that yeah. might we'll, help. We'll put links in, oh, right. the, okay. um, in the show notes. Yeah, Very good. So that might help. Um, so the paintings begin in the studio, and I paint what looks like wooden grain and looks like masking tape and bits of paper. So don't be fooled, because that's all an illusion. And then I leave the central part white, blank, and I take that out mm. into the landscape, and I set myself up like a 19th century... Uh, nature painter with my easel and palette and um, paints and, and all that, that paraphernalia out there in the landscape. And then I paint from observation. So that part, if you will, is the, the kind of observed uh, evocation of the landscape and everything else is the illusion. But of course, part of the fun is it's all about well, what, what is illusion anyway, you know, because the whole thing is a representation of, of things and stuff. You know, the, a painting is not in itself the landscape. It is a representation mm. of that landscape. So, um, yeah, so it, it's all these mm. questions about what's real, what's not real, true and false, uh, what's illusion. Um, but there's sort of a few slippery questions about the honesty of the artist and the, the, the kind of games that we play with one another. So it, it can go to that, that sort of philosophical realm if you are inclined to go in that kind of direction. <laughs> brilliant um we better not go too too much down that rabbit hole um right so this podcast yes. is much more about grief uh and hope um so so yeah if it's all right let's let's go yeah, let's sure. go on to to that subject because you've been quite open and honest about um a, a particular journey of grief that you and your wife um, have gone through yes um you've spoken about it you've written about it um but for those who haven't heard the story would you mind just relating it a little bit now yeah, of course and then we'll talk about the art that came from it 
Yeah, so I suppose the link with the art is I made a series of paintings that were a reflection on a family grief. The, the paintings were of paper aeroplanes, and um, you might not necessarily know that they are about lament, but the, the planes were painted um, shortly after my wife and I lost our first unborn child. And this was a few years ago now. Um, we already had our first child, Lily, um, was three, three and a half, I think, at that time. And her birth was as straightforward as a birth can be. Um, there were some complications towards the end. And uh, that led, with other circumstances, led to a situation where my wife and I found it very difficult to conceive and to um, hold a child. Um and so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget the moment, actually, when the doctor leaned over and, and uh, held both our hands and explained to us mm. that the, the child that was developing in, in my wife's womb was developing in the wrong part of her womb, um, mm. actually in the fallopian tubes, and um, that it was an ectopic pregnancy. And I'd never heard that term before. Um, and for those who, who aren't aware, ectopic pregnancy is the, the baby, the fetus is developing outside of the womb and really nothing can be done. Um, so the, the baby has to be removed and there has to be surgery, which is extremely intrusive. Um, and it was devastating. You know, it was absolutely devastating. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it proved to be the first of several children that we'd lose through ectopic pregnancy or miscarriage. Um, I came home that evening um, and uh, my wife was kept in overnight in hospital and I came home um, to pick up our daughter who I think our neighbours had at the time and uh, um, we started making paper aeroplanes and the, the paper aeroplane was something of a stand-in for that moment, for the grief, the, the sense of something intended for flight that uh, never took off or never landed. Mm. And I made this series of paintings of these paper planes that were a, a, a kind of metaphor for the children that we had lost. Um, of course, since mm. then, we've met so many people who have also endured, suffered ectopic pregnancies, other miscarriages, and, and realising just how common it it actually is, mm. but yet how little people talk about it. Um, which, and, and especially, I think, that men, you know, and dads to talk about it as well. So, you know, which is why it's lovely to have this opportunity and to, to talk about that, mm. that event and talk about the grief and how it informed art and faith and prayer uh, since then. Yeah. Mm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Mm. Um, so in your in your book why art matters um you you tell how your wife anna um yeah. wrote a poem about that experience mm. um and so i was just wondering what what was significant about writing poetry and expressing um what she was going through through poetry uh what was significant about doing that rather than just telling her friends mm. Mm. sound feeling what was significant about yeah poetry as a as a as a form of expression yes we we both went through a little counseling after we lost uh, our first child and it was a suggestion of the counselor actually to to anna to to write about her experience and about her grief and so anna chose to write a poem 
And there's something, isn't there, about poetry, the writing of poetry, about finding the right term, using an economy of language, considering first, well, what has happened? How do I feel about that? What's the right way of articulating that? Not just in an analytical way, but in a way that mm. evokes my emotion and response to it in a way that is true and emotional and imaginative. And I think Anna found that that whole experience of writing the, the poem um, extremely helpful in her processing of what had happened, in her anger towards God, in her confusion about what had happened. Um, as Anna and I navigated our marriage after that as well mm. and sharing the grief and trying to share it together but realising that we were coming at it from quite different places and spaces and positions. And um, and Anna then shared that poem with some friends. And uh, interestingly for some, that's the first that they had heard our, our news and Anna had chose mm -hmm. to share it with them in the form of a poem. Um, or for most, they had heard what had happened, but maybe hadn't quite connected how it had affected us. You know, people say... Yeah daft things, you know, really daft things in moments of grief and um, you know, one person at one point saying, well it was just a cluster of cells it wasn't even life oh. you know, and, oh. <laughs> yeah. well, and I get it it reflects a worldview, and I, I really get it and I don't um, think ill of that person at all um, but we, we believe that there was more than a cluster of cells uh, there Yeah. or someone else would say, well you can try again and you know, it'll happen for you next time um, which may have been the case, mm -hmm. but but that somehow belittled the experience of the ectopic pregnancy in itself. And we, we were in a place where we needed just to sit with the reality of the loss and lament the loss rightly. And the poem became a way to open really quite beautiful dialogue with friends who would say, well, we didn't know what felt like that for you, or we hadn't realised that it was so weighty on you. Um, mm -hmm. A few people kindly apologising for, for not, not understanding fully what was happening. So it, it became a way to open a door for friendship, which yeah. in turn brought healing and helped us grieve and, and lament. And, and I don't think that may have happened in a form if it weren't for the poem. It was just something about the poetry that allowed that dialogue to happen, that allowed for healing to begin, as I say, finding mm. just the right words to express things. Um, and so we hold on to that, that the poem and the memory, um, you know, recognising how powerful that, that was. Mm. And, and poetry isn't something that Anna normally does. It's not <laughs> that she is a poet, yeah. and so it just was the natural way of her doing it. No, indeed, she, she's a very creative uh, woman, she actually works as a teacher, and as all teachers know, that requires enormous leaps of creativity. Um, yeah. She is not a poet by trade or profession, and she may have written a little, but um, um, this is the first time I think she'd say that she'd really sat down and written poetry. So she'd probably say it probably wasn't Shakespeare, but that kind of didn't matter, you know. <laughs> no, no, that's right. It didn't matter. Yeah. yeah. And and that's so important to recognise, isn't it? Yeah. That actually art doesn't need to be something that's going to last for hundreds of years. Yeah. It can be something just for that moment. And yeah. and even the process of making it, even if it's not the most 
amazing thing. Yes. The, 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 there's something about making art that enables us, like you say, to, to process things mm. in perhaps a more um, considered way. Uh, um, yeah. But actually, not only like it's not analytical, but in it being considered, it actually creates something yes. beautiful in itself. Um, yeah. So even that is, um, yeah, that, that, that's a healing thing. Absolutely. Um, I, I think right of that, a certain tradition for painting that was developed um, by Zen Buddhist monks who, uh, and I, I speak from a Christian tradition, but there's a, mm. a lot within this particular um, Zen tradition that I think is quite potent. And they would paint on stones, en plein air, out in nature. And the sun would rise, it would get very hot, and by the time the painting was complete the sun would have already evaporated the water out of the paint and so they were left with dry pigment that could just be blown away from the stones. Wow. So effectively there was no final painting. Um, it was about the process of painting, the observation mm. of the landscape, the learning to paint. That was the work. Um, mm. and I think there's something rather wonderful in that, that yes, at times it's great to have a wonderful work that will endure for a very long time, but at times, as yeah. you say, it's just the process of, of making itself that is mm -hmm. uh, that is the work that is the work and is important. And we'll we'll come on to this, but the it's the exercise of the imagination. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And and so it especially in this area, it's so important to be exercising the imagination. And yes. Creating art in whatever form you're necessarily having to do that. So it is taking you to a place that you probably wouldn't go if you just. If you're just chatting or yes. not even talking about it. Yes. There was a second moment of creativity that occurred around that time as well. Well, I, Anna wrote the poem. We, we also decided together that we would plant a tree in our garden to remember uh, the child that had died. And it's a magnolia tree. So our um, daughter, we, we, think, we think of her as a daughter, um, died in July. And there's a particular magnolia tree that blossoms, but at that time of year. And oh. so we um, we planted a magnolia tree in the garden. And consistently, I have to say, it blossoms at that time of year in July, coinciding oh, with the anniversary of her death. And uh, we will find ourselves on the anniversary, uh, on attendance of this tree, watching the flower blossom. Now sharing that with our daughter as well as we talk more to her about about these things, mm. um, you know. So and it's a rather beautiful moment of of remembering and lamenting, not belittling the event, um, not wallowing in it, recognizing the death, and, and seeing that actually great beauty can come out of even mm. this horrible circumstance. And and for us, that's the beauty of having had this daughter in our life, but for a moment. Also, the belief mm. that we will meet her in the future, yeah. a new creation, and we do believe that. But also so many just wonderful, wonderful conversations, relationships that we've built with others who have experienced the, the loss of an unborn child, being able to empathise with them. We both feel we have a greater capacity for empathy than we, we, we mm. have before. And for Anna and I, in our relationship as well, that how the Lord has allowed us to bond further over this and grieve together and struggle together. Um, so again, not to belittle 
the event and we'd rather have had uh, the daughter in our, our daughter in our lives but but um, through even through that grief you know seeing how this wonderful flower can blossom like the magnolia flower once a year and it blossoms the magnolia flower blossoms just for a few weeks even a few days and then it goes mm. like our daughter who was there but for a moment and then and then uh, was no longer with us yeah so for me um dealing with grief um relies on a vivid imagination uh mm. talking a lot about the new creation our embodied eternity and i love your line uh in the book about us being uh, artists being window cleaners of the new creation mm. that, is, mm. that is magnificent but um could you expand on that idea mm. yes glad to well a couple of years ago i was fortunate enough to visit the studio of Paul Cézanne in the south of France, in Aix-en-Provence. And um, if you visit the studio... Can I just ask something? Do you, yeah. do you need to be able to speak really good French to be an artist? Because you're pronouncing <laughs> things so beautifully. I don't think I could ever, <laughs> I could ever do that. <laughs> well, c'est vrai. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you Sorry. have to. I think you're all right to be a Cockney geezer as well when still part of you the old Francais. <laughs> you'll get, you'll get emails Sorry. from people saying, we are French, his pronunciation was awful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Cool. Carry on. <laughs> it was in yes, well, Aix en Provence, and if you so if you visit Provence, you will you'll kind of wind up the little streets and you'll head up to his studio, which is in a beautiful garden actually, and it's a purpose-built house in in a really beautiful garden, and the studio has these fantastic windows, really high windows letting in the northern light, and the occasion I was there, it was terribly dry. There'd been uh, dust storms all week and I noticed there was a gentleman who was wiping the dust away from the windows and it seemed like a bit of a thankless task you see because the dust would come up onto the windows he'd wipe it away then almost as soon as he'd wiped it away the dust would just blow up there again mm. to block the view into the window and so I went to him and I asked him what he was doing and you know isn't it a bit of a thankless task and he said, and he replied in French, and this is probably where I'll default back to English because I can't quite get the pronunciation <laughs> of it. But he, he said, well, people need to see the wonder inside. They need to see the wonder inside. And I thought that was such a beautiful thing and somewhat analogous, I, I thought, of our work as artists of faith, of artists who believe in new creation, that we have this wonderful capacity and opportunity to present a little glimpse of the goodness of new creation mm. and the new creation is so good it can't help but glimmer through into the world now mm. and I wonder if perhaps part of our task as artists of faith is like that window cleaner to wipe away the dust that which stops us from being able to see the wonder inside that the goodness of being able to look in and see the glory of the new creation so i wondered if our role is a little bit like being window cleaners in the new creation mm. to wipe away that surface and um as i say in the book uh, christ described well he has so many analogies for new creation but one of them is a house you know his father's house and there are many rooms 
And I wondered if that house might be a little like the, the studio of Paul Cezanne, that we might be able to look in through the windows and see these interesting, curious artefacts that were part of our story and history, part of our story with Jesus, that have special significance that we might not know until we arrive at that house. And I thought, how wonderful would it be if we could clean some of the dust away so that we could look in and help other people look in and see the wonder of new creation. Mm. Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I, I think that's fascinating. The idea that in eternity we will be remembering things from here. Mm. Um, I love what you just did there with actually the artist can almost turn that around a little bit and let us look forward to that almost looking forward yeah. to looking back as well <laughs> so yeah. if that room has our memories we can kind of go look actually what we're experiencing now is significant and matters and mm. and, and and we'll have glimpses of that um mm. uh, in eternity there's um there's a series of kids books called the green ember series it's um, oh yeah it's about yeah. to be published here which is very exciting cool. um sd smith and in the huge rabbit warren there's an artist who sits at the mouth of the cave, of a cave, kind of looking out. But outside is just mist. Can't actually mm. see anything. But they're painting this beautiful, if I remember it rightly, they're sort of painting this beautiful woodland. Mm. And so somebody says, what, what are you doing? And they're, they're sort of painting the picture of eternity, of the new creation mm. as they see it as rabbits. Um, so they're not actually painting what they see directly out the window because it's just mist um, mm. but they're kind of looking beyond that um and it sounds a very oh. similar thing i love it he had rabbits yeah that's um, that's lovely analogy that. it brings to mind uh it brings to mind leaf by niggle uh, the talking yes. story as well that the character who, who want, has the ambition to paint a tree but gets interrupted and frustrated and uh without wanting to spoil it, that eventually when he arrives at a place that's kind of representative of new creation, that is a glorious tree that's been made for him and his leaf is part of it. Mm. Yes, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? That, that the things that we make now, uh, the things that we grieve now as well, how they might be remembered and continue in new creation. And mm. if I remember the way Jesus talks about the house, it's not solely in future tense. Um, I mm. believe it may even be in present tense. He is building a house. Mm. And if he is building a house, then I wonder if it, that's a house that will need furniture and need objects and artifacts. <laughs> and I wonder if there might be objects and artifacts of our current world and memory that might be there already. We might be a bit mm. surprised when we arrive. Mm. Go, oh, there's that thing that remembers, that reminds me of that event and i see now how god was working through it even when i didn't mm. expect that mm. he was working through it. and there there it is on the mantelpiece treasured and remembered like like the tears that are stored up in jars and treasured and mm. remembered yes i think i think sometimes when we read revelation 21 and it says there's going to be no more tears and no more pain we think okay well that mm. given that this world is is so full of tears and pain then yes maybe somehow it's just got obliterated um, right, and that, mm. that 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 any memory of the pain must be gone, because otherwise we'll experience pain, right? Yeah. Whereas I just wonder whether actually it's going to be transformed. Yes. Uh, that that we will we will remember those things, 
but there will be no tears and pain in eternity. So therefore, our remembrance of them must be, yeah, must be reshaped. And I mean, the thing that particularly convinces me of that is that Jesus still has scars. Yeah. The scars yeah. don't cause yeah. him pain. And and, yeah. and presumably when he turned up to the disciples in his resurrected body, still bearing the scars, they they would have looked back on the pain of just a few days before in a totally different way. Hmm. Um, hmm. Without without the tears and and pain of that Friday because hmm. because of the resurrected body and the, oh, OK, now hmm. I get what that was all about, what those scars were about. So yes. I just wonder whether that's that's going to be our experience, that we will go, oh, yes, yeah. there were these scars, but oh, I see what a glorious thing, Lord, that you've done with that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. They were painful. They they were genuine tears. But wow, you've tr you've transformed. You created a thing of beauty. Yes. Um, I wonder how that experience would have been like for the disciples, yeah. how that might compare to our experience of new creation. Such a such a wonderful thought, Michael. Because um, you're right. You know, the time of grieving was still at hand. They were still mourning the death of their saviour. And they must have just have been so overwhelmed by seeing yes. his resurrected body. They, what, what is going on with that? And then seeing the scars, which in no way would belittle or undermine the, the grieving and the loss. Mm. And also would demonstrate that there is newness. Mm. The scars, I'd imagine, after three days might still be healing. I don't know how mm. a resurrected body heals. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they were there. genuine enough that he could put uh, Thomas yeah. could put his hand in them. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're holes. They're it's, yeah, it's still there, but they're but they're transformed. They mean they're something different to what they were experiencing before. They couldn't see yeah. beyond the veil of what was yes. going on behind the scenes. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, it, it did a lot of thinking about this around when when Dad died and, and chatting to yeah. him about that. And it's a, the yeah. a theologian that I forget his name now um bavink oh it's bavink and and he talks about this the how thin the veil is um mm. and at the cross there's only two people who are kind of seeing slightly beyond that veil and that's jesus and the thief mm. everyone else it's it's disaster jesus is dying mm. it's death mm. it's or, or it's mm. victory for the pharisees or whatever whereas jesus knows what's just beyond and and the thief is going. Just remember, me. you're gonna you're gonna return, aren't you? Just remember me. And she's saying, "Well, you're gonna be with me in paradise." For them, the veil mm. is very thin. For everybody else, it's this big wall. But then, a few days later, wow, that that veil's dropping because yeah. they're seeing resurrection right yes. in front of them. They're seeing that transformation. They're getting a glimpse of eternity, like you say. Yes. And wow, when we turn up in eternity, that's that's going to be mind-blowing. It's going to be mind-blowing. <laughs> that, that veil is, and that veil is so thin. Now we are, you know, we're New Testament people and the, the curtain's been torn down. Mm. The veil mm. has been lifted. Yeah. And, and, art, see. and art helps lift that veil, doesn't it? It helps just give us little glimpses yeah. behind to what's going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Um, sometimes yes. for very brief moments, but enough to... To keep us going, I, I, I talk a lot about the um, Elisha and his servant when they're surrounded right. by the armies, 
and yeah. his servants terrified. But Elisha yeah. says, Lord, open his eyes and he sees the chariots of fire. Yes. And the veil is lifted for a moment and it gives them gives him hope. Yes, um, absolutely. Artists yeah. can do yeah. as they clean the windows. Yeah. Yes, Even then, the dust it, comes back. It's just for a brief moment, a clip. Oh, there! Oh, but it's gone again. But for just enough for me to know, there's something beyond. Yes, that yeah. can be enough. When we lost our yeah. daughter, it was just. It really was enough for us to know that there is new creation. That this death is not belittled. That this has happened, and it's not a cluster of cells that mean nothing. That mm. a person has existed for a moment and then has died. And that it's right to grieve and that there is hope that we might see our daughter in the future mm. and, and see what she looks like. Oh, and wow. just yeah. wiping away the dust for a moment, that was enough. You know, we could continue. We, we, we didn't then continue life forgetting our, our unborn daughter. And, I, you know, Michael, there, isn't a, there just isn't a day when we aren't reflecting in some way on what would it have been like if she was in our life, if the other children who we'd lost were in our life as well. Mm. We, we live with that continually. But the hope of new creation was enough to just to distill some of the rawness of it and, and allow. And you, I, I wonder if you'll remember this or have experienced this too in your grief. Those moments of rawness become less intense in time. The grieving doesn't mm. stop, but, but the, raw, the rawness does distill yes. in time. Um, you know, and someone said once, well, it's kind of an emotional crutch that you have, but it's not. It's not. <laughs> and that to me is the difference between hope and um, some kind of an ideal like optimism. And this mm. might be something we, we could get onto talking. But hope what about is... that was going to be my next question was about that. Oh, you say okay. that in, yeah. in the book mm. that hope. Um, yeah. Hope is different to optimism. So, yes, yes. go for it. What, tell, tell us more. Yes. Well, you know, hope. Um, scripture describes hope like an anchor that goes before us into the inner sanctuary. And an anchor is something pretty weighty and substantial and real. And I think sometimes perhaps hope and optimism get confused. If optimism is an ideal, an aspiration for things to get better, but without any particular evidence to suggest otherwise. Mm. So, like, you know, I'm optimistic that Scotland will do quite well in the football at the moment, but that is an <laughs> aspiration. <laughs> Not particularly grounded on current successes, you know. Yeah. Um, but differently, I hope that my wife and I will have a good life together and a marriage that will endure. And that mm. is based on our, that we've been married for 16 years, that we've had good relationship during that time. Um, that we love one another. There's a commitment that we've been through various events, including a grief together. You know, all of that to me builds mm. evidence more than suggestion that I am hopeful that we will have a life together. Um, but of course, I, I, we don't know what's going to happen. There could be all kinds of circumstances that would mean that our marriage would not continue. But I'm not optimistic about being with Anna for the rest of my mm. life. I'm hopeful that we will mm. continue in life together. And for mm. me, when we talk of new creation, as we have been, to me, that's not based on an ideal, on a feeling or a good vibe. But to me, new creation is based on a reality of the resurrection of Christ. Mm. And if I have a knowledge that that event happened, that that was a true event in history, not just a nice story or an ideal, but, but evidenced and reasonable and rational, 
then in some ways my hope for new creation is a bit like being I felt like being a time traveler so it's been like going back in time um, witnessing resurrection believing it to be true then jumping in my time machine going forward to the future seeing the return of christ and what happens next and then coming back to live now and with that combined certainty of resurrection from the dead and the life yet to come, then living now with the hopeful certainty of new creation, well, that really changes the way that I live now if I yeah. live with that hope. So that to me is hope, is a, a belief in things not yet seen, mm. but a solid belief. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, being certain. And different from an ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enjoying the conversation? I hope so. If you can't get enough of um, this and Ali's uh, thinking about art and why art matters, uh, you can get 30% off his book as a listener to the podcast. Um, so head over to the 10 of those website and um, find why art matters or use the link in the uh, show notes. And um, when you go through to the basket, just use the code no words, that's all lowercase, AG23. So no words, AG, that's capitals, 23. And you'll get 30% off Why Art Matters. And that is open to anyone. So go ahead and uh, use that code and you will love the book. Um, his art is in there as well. So you'll be able to see uh, some of the pieces of art that we're talking about in this episode so go get your hands on a copy of why art matters right back to our little conversation so how does that shape the artist then well i think it shapes the way that we see the world and the way we think about the past present and future the way we think about what we can see and the things not yet seen and and all of that then informs art and and painting so at present i'm painting landscape and uh when I look at landscape, I'm looking at something which I understand to be created and created beautifully, majestically, um, that tells me about the events of the past, but also might capture a glimpse of the glorious reality yet to come. Mm -hmm. You know, that the shining of the sun penetrating through the clouds isn't just a nice thing to look at, but it's also demonstrative of the, the authority of light in a world that experiences darkness. Or when I see how the seasons affect change uh, and I see uh, right now I'm looking out in my garden. This is probably why you might be here to hear a buzz of a fly about. And I'm sorry about that. <laughs> my studio's in my garden. But I'm looking at my pear tree and the pear tree has seasons, as all trees do. And in the winter, the pear tree will look dead for about two months and the frost will get in and break up the seedlings um, but I know that that needs to happen so that in the spring there can be new life. There needs to be the season of winter in order for spring to happen. And that, to me, speaks of a biblical reality, that there is death and lament and mourning, and that actually that needs to carry out its work within us and within creation in order for new creation to happen. There cannot be resurrection unless there's death. There can't be hope unless we are rescued or saved from something. And so as a painter, when I look at creation and I paint it, it reminds me of these biblical realities mm. and, and a hope for the future. And I hope that that's evidenced in some way in the paint, uh, hopefully in some way 
even to those who don't share our, our, our beliefs. But something of, of a solid hopefulness, I hope, is there in the yeah. work. I think one of my favourite things is a plant that you think is dead. Uh, yeah. You think, oh, just need to pull it up. And I, I often say to my wife, no, let's just leave it. Let's see what yeah. happens. And it's amazing how often they come back. And yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, just the, yeah, those pictures of resurrection built in. It's kind of like God's an artist. Um, mm. Yes. Don't say on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't that brilliant? Um, Absolutely. You also write that hope fires imagination. Yeah. Um, another great phrase. Uh but in my experience in church settings, I think there's sometimes a fear of imagination, uh, right. often mm. because it's kind of seen as making stuff up. It's away with the mm. fairies type thing. Mm. So how does hope and that kind of solid hope that you've been talking about enable the artist to use imagination in a grounded rather than purely speculative way? Because, of mm. course, there can be spe pure speculation. Like, yeah, there can yeah. be total flights of fancy. Um, yes. So how, as artists, can we be grounded without then just becoming purely analytical? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How does hope fire yeah. imagination? Oh, I love it. I love I love this question, Michael. I, it's something I've been reflecting on quite a lot uh, recently. And um I think that there are various reasons why imagination has had a bad rap, <laughs> particularly... <laughs> In reformed and evangelical circle, to my view, it is more to do with uh, the Enlightenment and than it is to do with any, I think, any kind of reasonable theological or biblical discussion. Um, so, I, you know, at, at some point, um, late Renaissance, that things of reason and rational have greater precedence over things that are emotional or imagined and things that are imagined may therefore be presented as a bit slippery, not true or untruth, not to be trusted. But when I look to our predecessors in Christendom and prior to Renaissance, who achieved wonderful acts of truthful imagination through music, poetry, the architecture of the cathedral, you know, was spectacular imaginative truths. I think the imagination can't can't be about slippery lying things. Um, I think about how Christ would share a parable and present a picture of a reality that exists within the parable, but mm. not anywhere else. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. I don't read anyone coming up to Jesus and saying, hey, okay, show me the pearl. I want to see that exact pearl. That it's <laughs> the true. kingdom you pearl. <laughs> the kingdom's a pearl. Like what pearl? Where's the pearl? <laughs> you know, they, they, they kind of got it in the way that we instinctively get, get story cool. ourselves. You know, we go, we go to a movie um, and we don't say that movie's not true. That, that planet does not exist. When we read the Lord of the Rings, we go Middle Earth doesn't exist anywhere. I want to go there. Show me it, you know, prove it to me. We accept it in, in the terms of the story. Um, so I think intuitively most human beings would accept that imaginative truth exists, but somehow mm. we get a little itchy nervous uh, about it. Um, so mm. I think of the, the great architect Basil Spence, who um, in 1944 in the trenches of Normandy in the Second World War was asked, what will you do if you get out of here alive? 
And the architect, Basil Spence, said, if I get out of this war, I will build a cathedral. And he had great hopeful imagination to build a cathedral that would demonstrate death is not the end, there is life beyond death, that there's hope even in times of war. And he did survive the war. And five years later, he um, successfully was granted the award to build Coventry Cathedral. And, and the old cathedral had been demolished during the war. And, and Basil Spence put forward a, a proposal to rebuild the cathedral literally from the ashes of the old. Wow. Evidence in the old, which is still there as a ruin. So the, the ruin wasn't destroyed. The memory of the, the disaster and the trauma is still there, like mm. the, the wounds of Christ in the new creation are remembered, like looking to the centre of the new creation where we see the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. You know, the memory is not wiped in the new creation. We remember the loss as the ruins appear in, in, in Coventry. And then alongside it, and actually attached by a walkway and doorway, is the new building, um, which is a rather wonderful ode to um, light and concrete and form <laughs> and shape and cram full of wonderful art by some of the greatest artists of the time, not least John Piper and Graham Sutherland, and, and taking decades to, to complete. And to me, it's a really great solidification of how Christian hope can lead to great imagination, can lead to actual wonderful buildings and artworks that in turn can inspire people truthfully with great mm -hmm. imagination towards the new creation. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me is just one example of how the imagination can be something real, concrete, truthful, um, and pointing towards new creation. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, you, it's, a, I guess, a similar analogy to the cleaning the windows you talk about uh, paul talks about seeing in the mirror dimly and mm. uh, you say artists are kind of can clean the mirror a little bit um yeah. help help us see a little bit more clearly i just wonder how much you think this is a unique vocation for artists or um say compared to a preacher or is it that art this kind of art actually seeps into all sorts of things and probably a good preacher is going to be um utilizing art well um, yes i don't know how yeah how unique is it to well artists? i'm i'm of the school of thought that all human beings are artists all human yeah. beings are artists um and uh, to me art is the capacity to imagine something and then to materialize that in some form or another and that may be a painting a drawing song poem it might also be your your evening dinner, you know, picturing what you'll have for dinner and then going ahead and cooking it. Or it might be in the garden, imagining what the garden might look like and going for it, pulling out the weeds and doing it. Or it might be imagining how the accounts could be for the year ahead and sitting down an Excel spreadsheet and putting together the numbers to make that happen. To me, artistry can encompass a wide, um, um, a wide diversity of creative actions um, but granted some um, will choose or, or feel led or even called to do this professionally and make things like paintings and poems and 
write songs in a way that perhaps advances beyond what other people would, would do and perhaps even generate income through that and become mm. artists in a, in a professional sense. But I, I think we're all artists. So all of this kind of hoping for new creation, mm. living with the grief of the moment, not belittling it, finding ways to articulate that, to describe it to ourselves, to other people. That's not just for the professionals. Yeah. You know, my wife wrote a poem and it articulated her grief and she's not a professional poet. We, we planted a tree in our garden and I'm not a professional gardener. Yes. Um, you know, these experiences of grief and hope are universal to all human beings in different contexts and different ways. Mm. And art, to me, in all its different forms, is one of these great gifts that God has given us to understand this world and navigate it and process mm. it and lament and heal and consider and hope for better things yet to come. I love it. So it is unique to artists, but we're all artists. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> others greater than I would disagree with that. <laughs> and it might even come down to semantics. But but the word art sure. is, it. I don't know if you know, but it's actually it's from the Latin. Uh, and it means, it can mean a few things. It can mean skill and it can mean arm. It's where we get the word um, uh, uh, arsenal from uh, as well, or armory. Okay. So, it, you know, basically, if you're making things skillfully with your hands and your arms, you are being an artist. Brilliant. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so those, those are kind of all the positives. Are there any pitfalls, um, particularly with dealing with uh, deep things like grief um, and hope in our art? Yeah. Uh, what should the artists be wary of as they approach yes. uh, these experiences. Yeah, yeah, that was, it's a really, I find that just a really interesting, quite complex question in, in a way. I think I, I can only speak for myself, but personally I can be prone to confuse um, things like self-evaluation um, um, with um, staring, staring at my navel, is that the way of putting it? Um, allowing <laughs> yes. myself to be in a kind of cyclical cycle of thought that my grief becomes something that is detrimental or harmful to myself or, and those round about me, a, a negative thought spiral. And I think, um, you know, one can be prone to negative spirals of thought that would amplify a grief to be something that it's not intended to be. And not in any way at all to belittle grief mm. and suffering. I'm mindful our world is both broken and in the process of being renewed. And, and so if I was to, if I was to process um, the grief of our daughter um, by saying, hey, it's okay, new creation's coming, the grief doesn't matter, I know it's painful, but don't worry, Jesus is coming back again, that, that would be the most awful way of processing that grief. Mm. But in the same way, if I were to process the grief as if to say, there is no hope, death has won, she has gone, I'll never see her again, I may as well give up as well. You know, that would be a different and incorrect way of processing that grief. Mm. Uh, somehow the reality that God gives us to live within is, is holding those things together in tension, that the grief is significant and valuable and right. And there's no but in this section mm, mm. and the new creation is true and Christ mm. is coming you know, sometimes when we put in a butt we belittle yeah. what happened before 
Yes. Uh, and, and this is an and. Yeah. yeah. I think we. I think we want to often go, for, especially with grief, we want to we want to process. So we go, OK, you can do the grieving bit for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but at some point you need to turn it to the hope thing. Right, and like you say, right. there's a danger in just going, I'm just going to despair. Mm. But there's also a danger in going, hey, everything's awesome. Uh, yeah. Let's yeah. skip to the end. But also, it's not a clear process like that. Yeah. In yeah. that they too are going to be intermingled. And I think a gospel, a gospel hope, and like you said earlier, necessarily involves grief. Yes. Because uh, what are we hoping for if things are fine now? Yes. We, we, we're going to lament. And yeah. that, that actually gives body to our hope of yeah. redemption mm. and, uh, mm. and so on. But all the while now, it's just going to be a whole mishmash and mangle. Yes. Um, but there is a danger, you're right, of, uh, I, I'm just going to say artists, but uh, artists who, I guess, are deliberately creating things that can be quite introspective at times. Yes, um, yes. And so we need to make sure it is a mishmash of both those things going on, <laughs> that yeah. the, the grief is leading us to hope and it may be going round and round and round and that's fine. Yeah. But yeah. not a pure, uh, uh, everything is awful. Yeah. It's, and it's a hard one, isn't it? Because, you know, as artists, um, we make things for an audience. And as you write a song, you know, the intention would be that that's for an audience. And I make a painting, the hope that someone will see it. Mm. And I did make a bunch of paintings shortly after she died that I have come to understand as being private paintings that I, I won't now exhibit. And I think partly out of protection for my wife and I to set a, a boundary there that's helpful mm. for us. In the same way that, um, you know, when we talk about our daughter, we, we, we don't share all the details. Um, yeah. You know, we, we have given her a name, for example. But at this point, we choose not to share that name beyond yeah. a close circle of friends and um as we believe to be right at this point and i you know i think there can be perhaps maybe danger is the wrong way of putting it but there can be a concern for oversharing as an artist to share things that are actually intended for for a private or personal situation to share that with everybody um and then of course when the critics um come and speak back and attack that work it can feel ever so devastating because it's almost as if you are being critiqued mm. for your your grief when actually it may have been more sensible for an artist just to hold a few things back at that present time so i think it's really tricky so i wouldn't um i wouldn't ever say to an artist not to make a work and there's no subject that is taboo for an artist and who's a christian yeah. as well but there may be something to be said for a reasonable wise measure in what we're choosing to share with the audience and, and how we share that uh, with them that's that's very helpful yeah um i think we should probably draw this to a close mm -hmm. um where can people go if they want to delve deeper into uh your writing and your your art oh thank you well i think everything's there online to be found they the book Why Art Matters, that came out two years ago. It's published by Intervarsity Press, and you can get that through the publisher or most online um, bookshops. And that it speaks about grief and it speaks about lament. It also speaks about how art can function in other ways too, how it can be a reflection of the way the world is made, how it can be a form of protest, uh, how it can be a, a form of therapeutic intent. 
how really it's about what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Um, my, my new book is out now as well, Quad Libet, that curious art term, and that's looking at the last 10 years of my painting, which I think is, it was on online bookshops, published by Anomi, and it's also, I think, at the moment, in books like, places like Waterstones, real physical bookshops Very for nice. a few months as well, so people yeah. can, can look there is too. Is this like your best of album? Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's like the greatest hits. So greatest that's hits. it. I, I can retire now. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we'll put loads of links. Um, and uh, and actually, listeners of the podcast can get 30% off Why Art Matters at 10 of those. It's a special code. Very so, nice. Very exciting. Great. Well, Ali, thank you so much um, for joining us. Oh, thank you. We're going to play out with a song um, that uh, sprung to my mind when Ali talks about that room in eternity containing memories of this life. And so this song is called There's an Empty Chair. That's only filled with memories There's an empty chair That tells a tale of love grown in time That now seems so pale I can still hear your laughter But the silence only screams I can still see your smile but the walls stare back at me is there a light we cannot see is there a mist surrounding me so tell me to be told is there
Michael here again. Uh, I wanted to let you know about this week's big giveaway. We have three copies of Catherine Campbell's Broken Works Best book to give away, thanks to ten of those. Um, And this is uh, a little bit about the book. Few of us are prepared to meet the unexpected blow of suffering head-on, even though it is a part of life's package. Catherine Campbell has personally walked the path of the brokenhearted. She shares with us how pain shapes our faith and develops a deep trust in the God who can transform what is broken in our lives. Using God's word, illustrated by moving true life stories, Catherine explores the difficult questions to enable us to find help for our struggling hearts. That fits so well with those things that we've been chatting about um, through this episode. Uh, So if you want to get your hand on a free copy of that, uh, we've got three to give away. Simply share this podcast on social media, tag at Michael J Tinker. Maybe say something about why you're enjoying the podcast to encourage other people to listen to it and you'll be entered into the draw. And we'll announce the winners ahead of episode seven. And then there will be another competition for episode seven and eight. So make sure you tune in to find out what you could be winning. So go ahead, share it right now. Tell all of your friends about the podcast. And um, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to When There Are No Words. Remember, you can support the show on Acast Plus, where you'll get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and other gifts. See you next time.